Well, hello, friends, and thank you once again for joining us for this devotional podcast from Hudson's Hope Bible Fellowship. I am your host, Pastor Luke, and it is once again a pleasure to have you here with us today as we open up God's Word and share together in what will hopefully be an encouraging time. If you've got to know me over this last little while we've been here, you'll know I'm an NFL fan, and more than that, I'm an Arizona Cardinals fan. On the Arizona Cardinals YouTube channel right now, there's a series called Folk Tales, and it kind of recaps some of the most famous and perhaps infamous moments in the team's history. And since that series debuted, I think there was one episode all of us Cardinals fans were waiting for. It's an episode that premiered last week. This is a big game. It's a Monday night game. Uh, if we're lucky, the roof will be open. I think it'll be a, enough excitement to light the whole valley up. And then the Bears are who we thought they were. They're who we thought they were. I had to really ponder on that one for a while. His doctor told him the best thing that he ever did was release that frustration. And I was, oh, what? We knew it was an instant classic. <laughs> That's for sure. Now, of course, this is not an NFL podcast, and you are not Arizona Cardinals fans, so I don't expect you to have the context to understand what you've just listened to there. But what you need to know, if you're going to make sense of this, is just a few simple things. This, it's a story about a press conference. The star... It's Denny Green, the late, great coach of the Arizona Cardinals, who was leading the team at the time. The press conference takes place after a game against the Chicago Bears. The Cardinals, they were underdogs, but they believed that they could win. They'd already beaten them previously in preseason. At halftime, they had a 23-3 lead. That's a three-score advantage to the Cardinals. And yet... Ultimately, the Cardinals would lose the game 24-23. And Coach Green, well, he was upset, to say the least. They were who we thought they were. That's the phrase you heard Denny Green speak during that trailer. That is the phrase that came to epitomise this press conference. It's so infamous, so iconic, that it was even used in a cause light commercial afterwards. At Denny Green's funeral, those words, they even appeared in the order of service. So iconic and recognisable they were. In the episode, though, you also hear Rod Graves, who was the general manager, talking about how he had to go away and think about that phrase. It's a phrase that perhaps is not immediately obvious. And unsurprisingly, that phrase has been in my head since the time that the episode aired. Like Rod Graves, it's a phrase that I've had to go away and ponder a little bit to make sense of. And it's got me thinking, would that be a phrase that the world would use about us as Christians? And if they did, what way might they mean it in? Because I guess there's two ways that phrase can go, right? The world it has a lot of preconceptions about us as Christians. Even that word, Christian, it carries baggage for a lot of people. Even in the church, you see that there are people these days hesitant to adopt the title. 
there's a growing number of people who would have at one point called themselves Christian, but today they avoid that title as if it's somehow tainted. Perhaps you've all heard the sorts of phrases get tossed around the I'm spiritual but not religious, I'm a truth seeker, I think Jesus had some good ideas but I don't want to put a title on it. Texas Christian University, it's a university which is open to students of all faiths and none, although it is sponsored by the Christian Church, open brackets, disciples of Christ, close brackets, which is nearly as much of a mouthful as Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists in British Columbia and the Yukon. But TCU, they wrote an article for incoming students back in 2010. The article, it opened like this. What words come to mind when you think of Jesus Christ? Now, what comes to mind when you think of Christians? It is very likely that what you imagined are almost polar opposites. Loving, wise, forgiving, saviour, all of these and other praising terms may have popped into your head when you thought about Jesus. A venture a guess, pondering Christians, however, sparked thoughts of beautiful words like crazy, overbearing, hypocritical. There are no shortage of stereotypes about Christians as bigots or hypocrites or unloving extremists or intolerant. The common portrayal is as people who look down their noses at those who think differently than them, who sneer because they think they're better than everyone else. Or, you know, insert your own stereotypes here, because we've all heard them, right? And that's the first option. The world can look at us with all the stereotypes and prejudices and preconceptions. They can see the way we live and act and conduct ourselves in the world and say, yep, they are the people who we thought they were. We had all these ideas about what it meant to be a Christian and these people, they've done nothing at all to change our perceptions. And we can look at that and think maybe that's a little bit unfair. That doesn't really represent what we believe. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, I know if I'm honest with myself, I know that there's definitely been times where I have contributed to that kind of perception about Christianity. Back in 2013, the Barna Group, they're an evangelical polling firm, research group and think tank. They polled American Christians right across the spectrum about their attitudes and their actions. They asked them to rate their agreement with certain statements on a four-point scale. They posed statements like, I regularly choose to have meals with people who have a very different faith or morals from me. I am personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. I see God working in people's lives even when they are not following him. I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins or struggles, that's between me and God. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws, and I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to consistently do the wrong things. In all, they posted 20 statements, some of which uh, they felt displayed attitudes and actions that were Christ-like according to how he behaves and acts in scripture, and others based on scripture which Jesus seems to describe as pharisaical or self-righteous. 51% of self-proclaimed Christians displayed more pharisaical attitudes and actions than Christ-like ones. 
Possibly even worse, a further 21% showed Christ-like attitudes, but their actions were still self-righteous. That is, even though they seemed to know what God had called them to do, how Christ expected them to live and act, they still didn't regularly put those things into practice. Another 14% seemed to be Christ-like in action, that is, they do the right thing, but are self-righteous in attitude and motivation. They're doing good deeds for selfish, prideful, or self-righteous reasons. Only 14% of people were broadly Christ-like in both action and attitude. Or, put another way, the overwhelming number of American Christians were precisely what the world thought they were when they call us hypocrites. And I suspect here in Canada, in the UK, across most of the Western world, those numbers would probably more or less hold up. The world has all these negative stereotypes about us, and for a lot of Christians, we're not doing anything to change their perception. Does that bother you? I think it should. In his letter, his friend Titus, in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes the following. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good work, and in your teachings show integrity, dignity, and same speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In your teachings show integrity. That is, I think, if you think about it, a slightly weird instruction. The truth, it's true, no matter who teaches it, right? Show, demonstrate, that's a weird thing to think about when we're talking about teaching. A few days ago, Mike Winger, a pastor and teacher who I really appreciate, and if you haven't found him yet, I would encourage you, go out and take a look at some of his stuff. He's a really good guy. And a few days back, he tweeted this in response to some ad hominem attacks on some of his recent teachings. Even if you're totally right about me being selfish, cowardly, click-seeking, approval-seeking, bigoted, arrogant, rude, or whatever your complaint is, you haven't even begun to work through my reasoning. The truth, spoken by a jerk, is still true. And I think he's right. I don't think he is any of those things, but I think his point stands. When we pro proclaim the truth, it's true, even when we don't live it out perfectly. The word for that truth in Greek, it's didasko, and that's where we get the idea of doctrine from. Paul, he thinks that doctrine is really important, and he starts this whole section talking about sound doctrine. But the word he uses in this passage, the one that we've just read, it's different. It's a totally different word. It's paideuo, and it's about the ongoing training discipline, even uh, the way perhaps a parent may punish a child to help achieve proper behaviour. It's the kind of teaching a coach does when he gets on the ice with his players and demonstrate the proper way to do a slap shot or a hockey stop. It's the kind of teaching Isabel's figure skating teachers do when they come alongside her and model the proper way to do a particular move. It's the kind of teaching that happens when a parent tells their kid we don't talk that way in our house. And then make sure that the child never hears them talking that way either. And is quick to stand up, apologise, own the mistake if they ever do. It's the kind of teaching that doesn't happen in a classroom. It happens every day as we live together and walk together and support one another. 
It's what's happening when we tell the world Jesus loves them with our words and then back it up by showing them love practically in their hour of need. It's different from just true facts. It's about the way we demonstrate what we believe through our actions. And so when Paul uses that word integrity, he understands integrity is not something you can just talk about. It has to be demonstrated. Jonathan Lamb, he describes it this way. The need to live our lives with integrity arises from the fact that we are called by a faithful God. His character is one of steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth, love and light. If we have come to know him, then we are called to express those same qualities. He then offers what I think is the best definition of integrity I've probably ever seen. Integrity means to walk in a way worthy of that calling, to live in conformity with his character. For a Christian, integrity is not only about living consistently with our own stated beliefs, though that's important, but it's also about making sure that the beliefs we hold are consistent with God's character, consistent with Christ, consistent with the one whose name that we've claimed when we call ourselves Christians. Jesus ate with tax collectors. He loved the outcasts. He spent time with sinners. Jesus loved people where they were in their sin and their mess and the mistakes. And he died for them, yet while they were still sinners. Yet while we were still sinners. Yes, of course, he loved them enough not to leave them there. He loves each of us enough to offer us a better way. He loves us enough to challenge our sinful actions and attitudes and to offer us a way out. He never expects us to sort ourselves out before we come to him. Of course not. We know that that's impossible. For the person who comes to him open and honest about their sin and need for a saviour, he never turns them away and tells them to get their lives in order. But he welcomes them right where they are, with all of their baggage and all of their mess and all of their sin. And he brings them in and loves them enough to die a humiliating, painful, shameful death for them, for you, for me. And that's the other way that the world can look at us and say, yes, they are who we thought they were. When we live in a way that models and reflects Jesus' teaching, life and actions, when we live out what we claim to believe, we leave them with no choice. They call themselves Christians. They said they want to live like Jesus. And you know what? We may not agree with them, but we can't deny that they're serious about it. At the end of the day, these Christians, they were who we thought they were. They put their faith into action. And we can't refute that fact. Of course, this doesn't mean simply going with the flow. Jesus calls us to a standard that the world may never understand. He calls us to live in a way that is at times at odds with what is accepted by the world. But that doesn't mean that the world cannot see when we live according to his standard. Brennan Manning, he once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. 
I think Paul knew this all too well. That's why he encourages Titus, as indeed he encourages us, to live in a way that is consistent. A way that shows the world that we truly understand what it means for our words and our actions, our stated beliefs and how we put them into practice to be in harmony, to live with integrity. A few verses later, almost as if to drive the point home, Paul writes these verses. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training, Paul uses that same word, uh, the teaching by doing word. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And if that doesn't spur us it, to practice what we preach, to show a world in desperate need of salvation, the love that Christ has lavished upon us, then I actually don't know what will. And that's a challenge for us all, isn't it? And so, as we dwell upon those words, as we think about that challenge, let's commit to putting our words into action, to showing a world what it means to live for Christ. We recognise that they won't perhaps always understand it, but they'll see it and they won't be able to ignore it. Let's commit to showing the world that we are indeed who they think we are when we call ourselves Christians, that we are followers of Christ, who live our lives for him. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time.